and I'm trusting for the Holy Spirit to speak through that. About a month ago, we had a series of men's breakfasts when we kind of came together for about four Saturday mornings. And during one of those breakfasts, someone said something that just really remained with me. He said when he's reading the Bible, that sometimes he often dilutes its power when he, he begins to forget that they're real stories, they're real events that actually happens. And I know it can sound like a silly thing to say, but even as Christians, we value the Bible, we love it. There is a sense when we become... I'm not sure it's complacent, but we become over-familiar with the Bible. We forget that these were real situations, real people that God worked through. So in a moment, I'm going to be reading from Psalm 51, and I just want to set the scene, so to speak. It's written by King David, and it's kind of a prayer of repentance, really. He wrote it after he'd been confronted by the prophet Nathan about his adultery with Bathsheba, and his involvement in the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. It's powerful stuff. I'm going to read the whole thing, but afterwards I'll probably just draw out a couple of key verses to look at. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 51. Um, It will appear up on the PowerPoint as well. Okay, let's read. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts and teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me of hyssop and I shall be cleaned. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we thank you that you are with us through your spirit. We thank you that um, your spirit speaks to us, that it reveals things to us. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we um, look at this psalm, as we 
um, meditate on your word, that our hearts will be open, um, that we'll trust in your spirit to um, highlight things that we need to address. Um, But Lord, above all else, we ask that you'll be glorified, that you'll be lifted up, our gaze will um, will rise and look at you, that we'll look above our circumstances and see that we have a wonderful, glorious God. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do this morning is really focus on three points. And the first would be a trap. Uh, The second would be a hope promised. And then finally, a victory achieved. And hopefully as we go along, that all makes sense. As most of you know, I'm a primary school teacher. And when I was trained to be a teacher, part of what they did at teacher training was again and again, they they drummed it into me that behavior management is important. They'd say that it doesn't matter how good you are at teaching maths, teaching English, teaching science. If you can't actually control the class, you won't, actually, you won't be able to do any of that. Um, unfortunately for me, over my teaching career, that has been probably the part I've struggled with most. Uh, but I do recognise that it's an essential part of teaching, and quite painfully I can remember with my first class that very little teaching went on just because I couldn't get their behaviour under control. But despite seeing that it's very important, I do recognise now that actually there is a problem with behaviour management. It has quite a narrow focus. Uh, My current head teacher told me a story recently about a pupil that when early on in the morning in the school day, he was looking through the window of his classroom and he happened to see that his normal teacher was away and saw that the teacher had been replaced with a supplier for someone who's going to cover the lessons for the day. And she said that this particular child was so excited at that prospect that he rubbed his hands with glee. Now, I imagine that when that child's teacher, normal teacher is there, but that teacher has loads of fantastic strategies for managing his behaviour, that he might be a bit challenging, but on the whole, he does the right things in class. But as soon as his normal teacher is away, what does he revert to? What is in his heart, really, the desire to misbehave is still there. It hasn't disappeared. It's just under the surface. And that's the problem, really. His behavior's been managed, but his heart hasn't changed. Now, I have to admit, when I heard that story, I, didn't, I, I found it quite funny. And we can, you know, shouldn't laugh at the child too much, but you can find his behavior a bit amusing. But the problem is, that's an approach that I can see my own relationship with God, that I can fall into the trap of letting behaviour management in my own life define my relationship with him. So what do I mean by that? I can have thought processes that go something like this. I haven't lied in three weeks. God must be so pleased with me. Or, particularly in teaching, I haven't shouted at my class in, well, today, maybe. God must be so pleased with me. And that kind of approach, it begins to shape your prayer life. It begins to shape your relationship with him. Because what you do when you come to pray, it's about asking God to manage your behavior. It's God, oh, help me stop doing this. Or help me stop doing that. And the problem is that it completely neglects the state of our hearts, our desires, our bad attitudes and our motives. Now, one of the things I find most interesting about Psalm 51 is that 
David doesn't actually specifically name his sins. He doesn't say, Lord, forgive me the adultery that I committed, or forgive me because of that murder. He writes in quite general terms, my transgressions, my iniquity, my sins. Those are the phrases that he uses. And I don't believe it's because he doesn't think that actions aren't significant, but I think David understood something. In verse 6 he writes, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. In verse 10 he says, Create in me a pure heart. I think David realised that God wants to get to the heart of the matter and that he knows that even though his sin has had an impact on those around him, it has had relational collateral damage, we might say, ultimately his sins against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This psalm is a great example of how to pray. It's not the only one, but it's something I feel we can learn from. So my question would be is, how do you pray? When you come to God, when you're speaking to him, is there maybe an unhealthy focus on just asking him to manage your behaviour, to stop you doing things? Are you allowing God to get to your heart and ask for transformation there? Now, we may think, why is that important to us as a church? Part of our calling is to be a light to the world, is to demonstrate to those who don't know, um, don't know Jesus yet. And how are we going to reach those people if we can't show them this? Because the world does outside does something quite similar. This week, I read an article that described it as a 21st century form of karma. And it goes something like this. If I do good things, if there is a God, I'm not convinced that there is, but if there is a God, he's likely to let me into whatever heaven is like, because how could he not? Look at all the good things that I do. It would be completely unreasonable of God not to pay me back in some way. And the danger with that, and what people don't realise is it completely forgets the state of their hearts, how far they've fallen short of God's glory and their need for him. To be honest, this trap of seeing our relationship with God as something as behaviour management can be a bit depressing if you think about it for too long. It can seem impossible to think about how can our hearts be changed. But God is a good and gracious God and... I just want to look now at how there's a hope promise for us and how actually that hope becomes realised and the victories achieved. So, what's the hope that's God's promise for us? He doesn't, as important as he is, he doesn't just leave us with praying. Um, I imagine when David was writing this psalm, having been confronted with his sin, he was feeling quite desperate. And actually, desperation isn't always a bad thing. I think it pushed David to come to God in the way he was, um, quite honestly, he'd come to the end of himself. He recognises maybe his complete inadequacy to overcome his sin, to overcome the challenges that he was facing. And that kind of desperation is good when it causes us to rely on him in great measure. But in the midst of that desperation, I think there's a fair amount of faith as well. I think when 
David prays, creates in me a pure heart, I feel there's a sense that he believes God can do it. The book of Psalms comes in the Old Testament. We can often think that there's an absence of grace then. Grace is something that arrived with Jesus in the New Testament. Actually, there's a fair amount of grace in the Old Testament. God chose the nation of Israel, chose to bless them, not because they were special in any way, but because just that, he chose them. He chose to enter into a relationship with them. When the Israelites suffered slavery in Egypt, he delivered them out of that. He gave them the law, the way he wanted them to live, and keeping it should have been their response as an act of worship. But just as David, Israel's greatest king, failed to keep it, so did Israel. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't quite do it. Now, you may not realise I'm quite a big fan of sport, watching, um, playing as well as watching, but there are some sports I'm better at than others. Now, in my late teens, early 20s, which I know it's hard to believe is a fair um, time ago, uh, I decided to try and take up golf. Now, is there anyone here who plays golf? Well done. Uh, I'd, I'd keep it that way. It is a very difficult sport. And as I started to play, I suddenly realised that pretty much all aspects of it I found difficult. But the one I found most challenging was what's called the tee shot. So it's when you're starting the hole and you're trying to hit it. You're trying to do your best swing. Now, I think depending on the hole you're playing, the general idea is to hit it high, to hit it far, and to hit it straight. And I just couldn't do any of those things. It was a cause of great amusement to my friends. And so, but you know, I thought, I'm done, you know, we should persevere. So I'd go to the driving lane. So it's not going around a course as such. You just get a load of golf balls and you try to whack them again, high, far and straight. But again, I just couldn't manage it. And it just became a real cause of frustration for me. I wanted to succeed, but I just couldn't quite do it. And Golf is meant to be a very social sport. You know, it should be a nice day. You wander around, have a chat with your friends, but you miss out on that when your friends have hit it in that direction and they go off talking, and then you have to wander over here <laughs> to find your ball. Uh, in the end, I just, <laughs> I have to be honest, I just gave up. My friends would still invite me because I think they found it funny, but I just couldn't cope with it. It was just too frustrating. When you try at something and it brings very little success, it is frustrating. When you're dealing with sin, begin to recognise the extent of it in your heart, and you feel you can't overcome it. It's not just frustrating, to be honest, it's demoralising. Maybe some of you look back on your lives and think, oh, I was meant to go far in this direction, but a mistake has taken you over there. And... That's a cause of frustration to you. And maybe you carried the guilt of that. Some of you may be thinking, I can just about control my actions, but this idea of dealing with my heart, my bad motives, my attitude, just seems too difficult. Dealing, without, um, dealing with sin without hope would be devastating. But God, in his grace, gives us hope. God recognised the inability of Israel to keep his law. He knew that it would take something else, and I think David sensed this. 
Later on in the Bible, this is one of my favorite passages. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, we read this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Sin in our lives is painful, it hurts, and there is a sense where it's a battle, we grapple with it, and I'm not trying to say that that battle doesn't exist, but there is hope. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This promise of a new covenant, really, it's a new relationship. There is this offer of having his law written on our hearts. As Christians, I'm not saying we should expect the battle to disappear, but I think it is maybe reasonable to say we should expect the battle to get less. We should expect breakthrough in our lives. So, we've looked at the trap and we've looked at the hope, but how is this hope realised? Well, it's the victory that is achieved for us. In 1 John chapter 5, it says this. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God big focus of this passage is the world and the world is in opposition to God's ways and I'd say that the world is waging war on my heart, is waging war on your heart and that can be difficult when we're meant to be um, living in the world but not of it and our hearts they're intended to be God created us to be fully devoted to him our hearts are meant to be fully devoted to him But what the world tries to do is it sends you messages to turn your heart to other things. It might be money, it might be relationships, it might be position. And what we end up doing is we end up pursuing those things because we want to feel significant, we want to feel valued, we want to feel important in the world. A war is being waged against our hearts, but who is it that overcomes the world? Who is it that can be confident their hearts can be changed and stand firm when the world is waging war against it? It's just that line again. Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It seems quite simple, and in a sense it is. But it's quite a loaded sentence. You believe Jesus is the Son of God, you believe his teaching. You believe that he died and he rose again, and in doing that he conquered sin, He conquered death and he made a way for us to have a relationship with the Father. He overcame the world. And when you put your faith in him, when you believe, you get his spirit, which we've been desiring so much of because we realise that's what brings transformation. And I just think this verse just has 
real couple of points of application for us. And I think the first is on an individual level, that if you're trying to change your heart apart from Jesus and apart from his Holy Spirit, I'm going to be honest, you're wasting your time. It is a waste. Of, I'm not sure about you. I don't like wasting my time. But that is a waste of time. There is no other way. And that should affect our prayer life. That should affect just how we relate to people, just knowing that actually it's only through him that we can expect to see change. And that gets us out of the trap of behavior management, of just seeking to deal with the difficult things that we do and not expect breakthrough. But I think the second application would be more of a corporate one, more for us as a church. You don't have to go far to see brokenness around us. You don't have to go far. If we're honest, we see it in the church, we see it outside. And what happens, the world outside, their way, the way of dealing with people's brokenness, maybe their addictions, the thing they struggle with, is just that they have strategies to manage it. And there's a sense where that's right. If someone's caught in a particular pattern of behavior, it's so destructive that it's, bringing, it's causing them damage, causing them pain, it's wreaking havoc in their life. It's right that they try to use those strategies to maybe manage it in a sense. But they are just managing if it's an addiction or if it's a pattern of behavior. They're just managing. What Jesus does is he changes the heart. He breaks the addiction. And... It was just fantastic when Matt spoke during the um, worship, and I wasn't there on Tuesday, so I didn't know, but fantastic that people were praying that our faith will be raised. And often, I'm not, one, I'm not someone who's really like, oh, the vision of the church, but often I do think, what would I like Beacon to be like? And wouldn't it be great if it's a place where people come into a relationship with Jesus, but they do experience transformation as well. They see breakthrough. If there's someone who struggles with anger, that goes. If there's someone who struggles with addictions, that that is broken. That's the type of church I'd like to see. Who is it who overcomes the world? Only for one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I'll just pray. Lord, I'm sometimes struck that in my own life how I can overcomplicate things and I just thank you for the simplicity of it all. It's about your son, the son of God. It's about what he achieved for us. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning people don't feel condemned, Lord, um, that people actually will recognize that you can do it, that there is power in the name of Jesus and that that brings change and transformation. So, Lord, I pray that we will learn to come with, to you honestly with our desires, with our motives, with the state of our heart, and we will expect you to change it, because you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're just going to take a few minutes just to worship again um, before God and we're going to sing the song Holy Spirit you're welcome here and um, 
I really believe that God's giving us an opportunity with the worship this morning that we've had and knowing his presence is here and we have some time left just to really do business with him. I just uh, made a couple of notes on what Steve was saying and he said this, God wants to get to the heart of the matter. That's sin against God, not necessarily the types of sins. We really realize that we, we so often get involved in just the detail, don't we? But the principle is we are sinning against him. Is it behavior management we desire or heart transformation? And actually, if the heart is changed, the behaviors change. Trying to overcome sin is demoralizing. We need a heart transplant. And the world tries to turn our hearts to other things. It's a war waged against us, and yet it's only through him we can really expect real change. Jesus breaks the cycle of behaviors the cycle of addictions, the fears, the health issues, the broken finances, broken lives. It's Jesus. Also, as a way, I was just reading something, and uh, this is what a commentator says. There's one way to ensure that aid... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 